Today is January 31st. It is 2016. Our message this morning is called proselytize. Proselytize. I'll show you some reasons why here in just a minute. I do want to encourage you that there were a couple folks who believed that they had words during the service. And, uh, and I believe that their word was accurate. I believe they had uh, the best intentions in mind. There is a moment in every service where it is clear that the Lord wants to speak. And um, the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophet. One of the things that is incumbent upon the leadership in any free church is that you work to make sure things are done in an orderly way. Amen? Amen. Uh, Please don't ever be offended if we say, hey, that's a good word. I'll take care of it during the message. Or, hey, that's a good word. That was appropriate three songs ago. Right? We're all working this out, but that is, uh, that is part of the New Testament church. The alternative would be to simply declare yourself a business center and, uh, and forbid the things that the Bible declares must be for the sake of expedience. Uh, we are not interested in forbidding anything that the Bible says must be. Can you say amen? amen. With that in mind, one of the prophecies that came forward, I just thought I would tell you as we get into our message proselytize came from Psalm 143. It was verses 6 through 8. And the general concept behind it was that the Lord wanted to pour out water on the dry and parched land. He wanted to encourage someone in here that if you're in the kind of place where you're looking for direction and you just don't know what to do, He wants to encourage you. And go ahead and raise your hands to Him and surrender was the idea of the prophecy. I want to bear witness with the fact that I think that was a good word for the service. Uh, When you're in a service that has prophecies in other tongues, prophecies that are interpretive, when you have scriptures coming to people, this is a healthy and active body. And we want to make sure that things are done in a way that encourages everyone. We don't have more than one person trying to speak at the same time. And it is nice that if it happens, they're saying exactly the same thing, though. Uh, I do also want to tell you just by way of some of you are very new to these things, would like to mention to you that in this body, while these things are happening, none of it is orchestrated. And when I say none of it is orchestrated, uh, Pastor Piro is choosing to play songs based on what was prophesied or what he felt led to do in that moment. The interpretations that are coming forward are coming from people that did not consult with each other to make sure they were on the same page. It is evidence that the presence of the Holy Spirit is bringing the body into a place of unity. As we take our eyes off of ourselves, as we repent before the King and move forward together, His direction for the body becomes clearer and clearer. How many of you felt the presence of God in here today? Well, then I'll say this as a last little disclaimer. Uh, I'm the kind of pastor that will stand on top of a mountain and tell everyone Muhammad was a pedophile. Uh, It doesn't bother me at all to say it. I'm not even a little bit squeamish. I don't have a problem saying that Allah is Satan or that the Koran is devilish. But what I want to be judged by, what I want you to take stock of, is either the presence of God shows up in this room or He does not. Now, that doesn't mean that every little thing that we do is correct. We're learning and growing all of the time. But how many times have you gone to a church service and you never felt the presence of God? And then ask yourself why you would continue to do something like that. 
Amen. Are y'all ready to talk about proselytize? Somebody said spell it. Is that what you said? Is this a test, Christy? We are a church. We are a church where we believe it is okay to speak from the congregation. So even if you are a Caucasian, it is okay to speak out loud. You will not be struck dead. Look to your left or right. It is likely that you'll find somebody not quite as white as you, and they will show you what to do. It'll be okay. All right? Uh, can we put a definition of proselytize on, on the screen? So this came straight from Google. And uh, it is to convert or attempt to convert someone from one religion, belief, or opinion to another. The secondary definition is to advocate or promote a belief or course of action. I'd like to move to a letter that uh, one in the congregation received. You can pick either one of the Word documents. This may be difficult for you to read, but I want to tell you it's addressed to Nolan Hewitt. Nolan, would you stand up for just a second? Aside from having an excellent beard... Wave to everybody, Nolan. Nolan was recently engaged. Stand up, Tara. <laughs> Nolan fell in love with the Lord. He was uh, an ordinary sinner that we met, I think, on a fencing project at some point. Saw potential in him and wanted to pour into his life. And Nolan has relentlessly fought with sin and is overcoming. And uh, his life is marked by a love and desire for the King of Kings. Now, we do not teach to be obnoxious in the workplace. We never have. I don't believe that you should chase people around and beat them with your Bible. I actually believe that the natural fruit on your tree ought to show a love for the King. Uh, during deer season, you meet people who love to deer hunt, and they let you know all about it. I haven't been mad at Bambi in many years. During, boy, how dated is this? During NASCAR times, you hear about people that like a certain race car driver. During Super Bowl, during each event, you find out what people are passionate about, and they proselytize for their cause. They will tell you why their team should win. They will tell you why, you know, this team is better than that team and this quarterback. And it turns out that Nolan was speaking to someone who had the LCMF app on their phone, somebody who doesn't go to this church. It was a driver for a company called AAA. And Nolan said, hey, man, are you still in love with Jesus? To which the guy says, oh, yeah. Well, apparently that made somebody in the workplace feel uncomfortable because it's okay to talk about Muhammad. It's okay to be a lesbian or a homosexual in their eyes. It'd be okay if they were talking about pornography. But the name of Jesus, not okay. So this letter says on January 28, 2016, Nolan was proselytizing, to which I say, yeah, he was. Give the young man a hand. Nolan was proselytizing in the workplace with the AAA driver inside the warehouse. Nolan has previously been warned before about proselytizing in the workplace. Back on September 15th and October 22nd, the next time Nolan proselytizes at the workplace, he will be terminated, to which we said, what a glorious day that our Christian faith is strong enough that the lost people are taking note. 
Now, I hope you can't read the signature. But if you could, you need to know something. He doesn't think he's lost. He goes to the fastest growing church in Fort Bend County. The kind of circus church where they have chicken cams. And they're relevant in every way except the way that counts or matters. Now, I have no grind with that church. That's not my issue. I have an issue with Satan trying to impose his will on the sons of God. Can I tell you that we're willing to not only lose our jobs, but our lives for Jesus? And if you are not, then you're not much of a Christian. I'd like to show you a second letter. Is that okay? Then we're going to read a letter that Jesus wrote. Okay? So in the second letter, incidentally on the same date, January 28th, 2016, Judah interfered with a particular supervisor's name while that supervisor was disciplining Nolan about proselytizing in the workplace. Do you mean to tell me that one Christian stood up for another Christian? Oh no, what is the world coming to? There was a time period where we considered us one in the body of Christ. And when one person felt pressure, we all felt pressure. What has happened with everybody's personal conception of Jesus? By the way, Judah is being formally written up for interfering in a disciplinary action. The next time Judah violate, I think that's supposed to have an S, but who am I? I'm not a grammarian here. The next time Judah violates company policy, he will be terminated. How do you respond to something like this? Well, you could call the ACLU, but they're not always interested in righteous causes. You could pick up the phone and say, hey, are there any attorneys out there that want to take on a a freedom of speech case protecting religious liberties? You could wage war as the world does. Or you could walk into the office and say, the day that I began working for you, I hoped with all of my heart to be a blessing to you. As I recall, I was referred here because you came and talked to my pastor and asked if there were any men of character that could come and work here. Since that time, your business has grown more than twice over. There are now four Christians from the same church working in your warehouse, and you have been blessed and enriched in every way. But if you think that we are no longer a blessing, you don't have to punish us. You don't have to write us nasty letters. You just tell us that you don't want us here anymore, and we will shake your hand, love you, Pray for the salvation of your soul while we gloriously move on to our next workplace where they will see us as a blessing. Four men will be looking for a job. These four men are Cody Schmidt, Andrew Tisdale, Nolan Hewitt, and Judah Stevens. You say, hey, uh, that seems very radical. I mean, doesn't Judah and Sasha have a baby on the way? Isn't Nolan getting married? How on earth will Andrew take care of that beard without an employment? (laughs) I say the call of Jesus Christ is a radical one. I've never been excited about losing uh, income any more than anyone else. And yet, what would it say if you would not risk your income for the glory of God? I was reminded of another 18-year-old who four months into marriage also lost his job. Apparently, it was okay to witness about Jesus, and the owner's son gets saved. But when he got filled with the Holy Ghost, that's just way too far, you know? Something of a family tradition. 
I'd like to encourage you that there are no special forces Christians. There are simply Christians. During this message today, I hope you will check your heart, examine yourself. Because Jesus Christ got a revelation from the Father. You can read about this in the first chapter of Revelation where we're about to turn. And when he got that revelation from the Father, he sent his angel to John. If that's foreign to you, what I'm telling you, then you're missing out on the very first paragraph of the letter called the Apocalypse. And in that revelation, Jesus Christ himself addresses seven churches in the first century. When you're asked how many books are in the New Testament, very often we would say 27. And certainly that's correct because we view the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, as one book. But it actually contains seven letters within it to known churches in the day. When we're thinking about this, how many of you have heard consistent, regular preaching and teaching in other churches on the book of Revelation? Look at that. We get one, two hands out of 130 or 40 people. Somehow or another, we've decided that this book is locked up and sealed and nobody can understand it. And we've also, many times in the same churches, decided that the Older Testament is not as important today as the Newer Testament. We've also, in many of those same churches, decided that entire segments of Corinthians and Acts are for some other time. And you have to begin to ask yourself, what part of the Bible is left for you to embrace, if this is your view? I actually see a blessing in the book of Revelation. Could you read with me Revelation 1 in verse 3? Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart. What is written in it? Because the time is near. Did you hear that you're blessed to hear it? You're blessed to take it to heart? You know, he repeats that kind of blessing in Revelation 22 and verse 7. This book contains not one, but two blessings. Listen, behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. The book of Revelation contains not one, but two blessings just for hearing it and trying to apply it. So let me ask you, why would we ignore this book? Is it because our best-selling fiction authors have defined it for us and now we don't need to read it anymore? Can I tell you that the book of Revelation is not fiction? There are many words that could be used that uh, could define the book. You could have said the epiphania, the appearing of Jesus. You could have said the parousia, the coming presence of Jesus. He chose the word apocalypsis. When we say apocalypsis, understand that this is the seeing and the understanding of Jesus. The book of Revelation was meant to be understood. Would you like to understand something this morning? I thought we might start with the very first church that was addressed. It's interesting as the churches that are addressed in the book of Revelation. It's also interesting how many churches are not addressed. Church at Antioch, not addressed. Church in Jerusalem, not addressed. The mighty Corinthian church, not addressed. And it might be that God himself picked seven churches, because he's kind of fascinated with sevens. Have you ever noticed that? Just to give you an idea, just to run through a few before we begin in Revelation 2. There are seven churches listed in this book. Seven seals, 
seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven lampstands, seven spirits, seven stars, seven title pairs, seven promises to the overcomer, seven horns, seven eyes, seven angels, seven thunders, seven heads, seven crowns, seven plagues, seven hills. Are you following me yet? Pretty fascinated with sevens. So how many churches is he going to address? Turns out that he addresses seven churches. And the first of them is the church Ephesus. Ephesus was a seaport. And if you were going to visit the area, you might go to Ephesus first in the series of churches that we're about to discuss. I I wasn't going to do this, but now I think I am. (laughs) Amen that we uh, don't have to answer to a council in the Vatican. We can teach what is put before us. I'm going to take Ephesus and write it here. Look in your book and see what is the next church to be addressed. Smyrna. And after Smyrna, Pergamum. And after Pergamum, And after Thyatira. And after Sardis. And after Philadelphia. (laughs) Running out of board. Seven, right? Now, what if I told you that these seven churches were founded at... No, not churches. Cities were founded at different times in their history. That some of them actually ceased to be a city and then were brought back to life and became a city again later. That some of them switched rulers more times in nations than I can count, but the city's names themselves, existent hundreds of years before this letter was written, told the story. What if I told you that Ephesus meant the desired one? The very first church mentioned, look it up in a Bible dictionary, means desired one. Smyrna means myrrh or death. Pergamum, high citadel. I'm not making these up. You can take a New Ungers Bible dictionary. You can take a McClintock and Strong's. You can take any of those that you might want to. You can take Thyatira, perfume or labor of love. Both are accepted definitions. Takes us to Sardis, prince of joy. What does Philadelphia mean, saints? Brotherly love. And Laodicea, interestingly enough, means just people. You mean to tell me cities miles apart, founded hundreds of years apart from each other, the Holy Spirit would choose to address the churches in those cities and it would tell a story about the desired one who died in a high citadel as a labor of love. He would be the prince of joy, bringing brotherly love to a just people. You mean to tell me that our God is able to work even through pagan governments to speak a message about Christ? I want to submit to you as we begin to study Ephesus that there is something in it called a homiletic. It's in all seven churches. 
It, it goes like this. It's verse 7. Chapter 2 and verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the... Do you mean to tell me he could address Ephesus, but also be addressing life-changing ministries? Also be addressing Sugar Creek? Also be addressing First United? Also be addressing churches? The Living God, what makes this book so special, and it stands out among all books of all time, is that he is able to address Ephesus and also address you today at the very same time. Now, if the very first letter that is written to a first century church by Jesus himself is contained for us in the Bible, do you think it's important what he says? All right. Now, for some reason, left side of the room fell asleep on me. Is it important over here what Jesus says? Yes. Okay, right side of the room. Is it important what Jesus said to Ephesus? Yes. Okay. What an extraordinary thing that he says. Go to verse 1. Put it on the screen. 2 and verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Now, angel here is angelos. It 99% of the time means an angelic messenger. Here it is loving language about a pastor, a messenger that is a pastor. To the pastor of the church of Ephesus, write. Now, we could go into why I say this is a pastor and not an angel, but suffice it to say they're exhorted to repent. They're told that they will uh, die. They're, they're told that uh, Jezebel is among them. They're told things that angels are not told. So I say a pastor. To the pastor of the church in Ephesus, write. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. If you had read earlier in this book, those seven stars refer very much to the seven churches, the seven pastors of the churches, and walks among the seven golden lampstands. When you hear lampstand, there are seven of them among the seven churches, but they also have seven branches. This is because the Spirit of God is spoken of as sevenfold. God is fascinated with sevens. What is that structure called? A menorah. Even the churches in the first century had menorahs in them. So when you see Hebrew writing on our pulpit, please don't misunderstand. Jesus was Jewish. And I think it's right that we call him Yeshua HaMashiach. I think it's right that we know what his mother referred to him as was not Jesus, but Yeshua. And this doesn't change. We're not Jews. We are Gentiles who are grafted into a Jewish religion. And to understand what is happening, you might need the Jewish context. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Verse 2, I think, is probably one of the most overlooked verses in all of the Bible. I know your, what's it say? I want you to see the difference between these words. Deeds, I know your deeds, and creeds. He did not say, I know your 14 points of doctrine. And boy, they're perfect. I love the way that your pastor stands up every week and agrees with his own 14 points of doctrine and yet another new and exciting way. How incredibly courageous. He doesn't say that. 
He doesn't affirm the Nicene Creed in 325. He doesn't affirm the Athanasian Creed in, in 450. He, he doesn't speak about the creed where Mary is called the mother of God. He doesn't mention the doctrinal statements of the day. He said, I know your deeds. Who did he say it to? He said it to the church, the very first one that he decided to address. He said it to a church whose name means the desired one. I know your deeds, your hard work. At this point, don't we have to stop and remind Jesus that we can't work to be saved? At this point, don't we have to stop and tell Jesus he's adding to the cross? At this point, don't we have to stop and tell Jesus he can't even see our sin and what we do doesn't matter because Joseph Prince and Joel Osteen said so? At this point, don't we have to be concerned that the very first thing that after Jesus ascended, he ever says to any church in writing is, I know your deeds. Maybe deeds mean something different here than it means to us. Maybe he, maybe he, he said deeds, but he meant something else. Have you ever heard the political commentators? I know this guy just said this, but what he meant was, when we're looking at the word for deeds, you can put this one on the screen. We have a Greek word, ergon. Can y'all see that? If you can't see it here, you'll be able to see it there. It's Strong's number 2041, and it's best understood as the result of employ. Please consider for a moment what Jesus is saying to them first. I know what you have done as a result of being in connection with me. Didn't John 15 teach us to stay connected to him that we might bear much fruit to the glory of the Father? He's saying, I know what the work product of your life is. If you wanted to examine this kind of principle... You stay right where you're at in Revelation. We're going to put a couple of scriptures on the screen for you so that we can go through them quickly and you write them down. I rarely lie when I preach. And when I do, it's usually about the length of my beard. So in Isaiah 1 and the 15th uh, verse, I'm going to read 15 through 18. When you spread out your hands in prayer... I will hide my eyes from you, even if you offer many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Verse 18. Come now, let us reason together. Then we get into our famous passage about our sin. But understand that repentance from wicked deeds was the beginning of the passage. And then he listed the kind of deeds that God honors. Taking care of widows, those who are oppressed. So let me ask you, does God see your deeds? Does he care about your deeds? Of course he does. Is it possible to be righteous in a moment regardless of what your deeds were? Yes, you are credited with righteousness the moment that you trust in Christ. But you have a responsibility to actually walk in a righteous fashion then. You have an obligation 
to be judged by the Spirit of God. Let him convict you and guide you into righteousness. The church has lost its way. It is the very first thing that was said to the first church addressed in the book of Revelation. I know your deeds. I know what the work product of your employment with me is. And somehow or another in today's church, all of our messages are aimed at he doesn't look at anything that you do. All he cares about is whether you prayed a prayer that somebody else wrote at an altar in a warm, fuzzy, emotional moment. And now you have a blank check to send, but you probably won't use it if you really love him. Guys, this is, uh, this is as damning as the concept that if you eat a wafer, you're saved. Because it is producing people that can quote the Roman road to salvation, but they have no deeds as evidence of their faith in their lives. How about Isaiah 3? This would be verses 10 through 11. We're coming right back to Revelation, but I want to show you a few. Tell the righteous, it will be well with them, for they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked. Disaster is upon them. They will be paid back for what their hands have. It was intended for you that God had ordained deeds for you to be done in faith. I'm going to show you that without any question today, that they are laid out for you like jewels for you to find. Uh, the Proverbs say, it is to the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it is to the glory of kings to search it out. You become a king with the Lord. How many of you know he's not the king of subjects? Come on, sweet baby Ray. What's he the king of? He's the king of kings. You become kingly when you seek out what his will is for you and the result of you falling in love with him are deeds that have been produced by faith. Because you trust him, you went to a valley in Peru. Because you trust him, you witnessed at work even though they threatened you. Because you love him, you love not so much your life as to shrink back from death. These are the deeds that the righteous will be rewarded for. How about Jeremiah 17, 10? <clears throat> I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. Now, somewhere in the recesses of your theology, probably it is rolling around in your... your um, catacomb there wait pastor with all respect that's old testament and who wants something that is old we want the new and improved testament there's no such thing we have the exact same god in older and newer testaments what we have are newer and better promises made by the exact same character, the exact same God. Nothing about him has changed. Everything about us must change. Let me show you that. How many of you think the Sermon on the Mount was Old Testament? Okay, how about Matthew 5.16? Let's put that on the screen for us while we're discovering our ergon. In the same way, let your light shine. Somebody say, I'm going to let it shine. Before men. Wow. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. What are they supposed to see? Good I thought religion was a private and inward matter. Well, 
the same person that it was a private and inward matter for that lied to you and set that example is as deceived as you are. Religion is anything but a private and inward matter. Well, while we're thinking on that subject, what is the result of receiving power in Jerusalem in Acts 1.8? He says, but when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, Acts 1.8, you will receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What is the result of coming into contact with the Almighty God? Outward witnessing. Unless, of course, the company handbook says no, then you get a choice to make. Not whether it's legal or not for the company handbook to say you may not speak about Jesus. I mean, you can speak about porn, deer hunting. You can speak about nationalistic politics. You can speak about anything but Jesus. Jesus off limits here. Boy, what a country we've come to that people think they can actually do this. You know what I love? I love the response of the four young men. They told me, I said, you know what they're telling you is not at all legal. They said, even if it was illegal to witness, it would not change our minds. I said, you're right. This is not a legal issue, is it? Oh, man. Sometimes you raise up better disciples than you are a pastor. Oh, this is to the glory of God. Would you be surprised if I told you that 10 times in the history book of the church, 10 times in Acts, you are told to be a witness? We're not going to turn to them. I'm just going to mention them to you. We start in Acts 1.8, then Acts 1.22, then Acts 2.32, then Acts 3.15, then Acts 5.32, then Acts 10.39, then 10.41, then 13.31, then Acts 22.15. We eventually make it all of the way to Acts 26.16. I want to show you what Paul preached in Acts 26.20. Okay, let's look at Acts 26.20 before we leave the subject of Ergon. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also. I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their... Look, I don't care what morning theological coffee programs you're listening to or what purple-haired people sitting in thrones on TBN you're listening to that say something other. This is what the Apostle Paul said. You can have whole denominations that de-emphasize deeds in every way and actually treat you like it's a works-based salvation if you say you intend to show your repentance by what you do. But the book of James says this very thing. James 2.18, I will show you my faith by what I do. Let us not confuse not being able to work to get saved with not working because you're saved. I want to show you the next part of this phrase. Would you be surprised if there were seven Greek words that are emphasized to the Ephesian church in the book of Revelation? Why seven? I don't know. I just know that God likes sevens. The first one is ergon. And ergon relates to this sentence. I know your deeds. The next one, not just deeds, your hard work. When we're looking at hard work, this is kopos. 
I'm putting it on the screen and the board for you with Strong's number so that you can look it up. When we say hard work, understand that we're talking about a wearying labor. Do you see that on the uh, screen above you? A wearying labor. Many times kopos is translated beating, crying, or lamenting. But in this kind of context, it literally means not just any work, laborious work. I know your deeds. I know your labor or weary work. So Christians don't just have deeds of righteousness. We hurt for them. We agonize over them. We do what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.12. Fight the good fight of faith. Agonize the good agony of faith. Those are the base words in Greek for that. It is hard to live a righteous life. In fact, anyone who wants to live a righteous life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So let me ask you, do your deeds cause you to be persecuted? Do you take the low-hanging fruit? Or will you go the whole way and hurt for the fruit? See, I don't think Jesus is worth just candy canes and lollipops. I think Jesus Christ is worth it all. One of my favorite men, and before I read this, I'm going to acknowledge I've read it to you many times. I am going to yet read it to you many more times. When you have the last name Stud, you deserve to be listened to. C.T. Studd was a missionary to Africa. He made himself a pauper in a single day by writing five checks to the ministry that he thought was doing the most in the world. Five ministries. One of them was Hudson Taylor. That gives you an idea of his time period. He had been a cricket star and a national hero in the United Kingdom, and he emptied himself of all wealth and moved to Africa to go find mighty exploits for Jesus the Christ. And when he did, he wrote this letter. Too long have we been waiting for one another to begin. The time of waiting is past. The hour of God has struck. War is declared. In God's holy name, let us arise and build. The God of heaven, he will fight for us as we for him. We will not build on the sand, but on the bedrock sayings of Christ. And the gates and minions of hell shall not prevail against us. Should such men as we fear before the world, I, before the sleepy, lukewarm, faithless, namby-pamby Christian world, we dare to trust our God. We will venture our all for Him. We will live and we will die for Him. And we will do this with His joy unspeakable singing aloud in our hearts. We will a thousand times sooner die trusting only our God than live trusting in a man. And when we come to this position, the battle is already won. The end of the glorious campaign in sight. We will have the real holiness of God, not the sickly stuff of talk and dainty words and pretty thoughts. We will have a masculine holiness, one of daring faith and works for Jesus Christ. Does something in there stir your soul from a saint from a previous generation that understood when you fall in love with the king, it will show up in your actions. That every tree is known by the kind of fruit it produces. Listen, if your grace has portrayed God's mercy as a license for immorality, that is not the kind of fruit that we want to leave behind.
What we want to leave behind, it says, His grace has appeared to me and taught me to say no to everything that's ungodly. His grace is there. He has granted me repentance. He is helping me. He is empowering me. Day by day, He is being formed in me. I love Him and He loves me so I can no longer live the way that I used to. My ergon has changed. And I will co-post for Him. Now hear me. Not compost for Him. That's what half of the church is doing already. We want to co-post for Him. How many women in the room know what labor is? Raise your hand if you've had children. Can we say there are deeds and then there is labor? There is work and then there is labor? I mean, your husband loves you when he cuts the grass, but it was labor when you had those children, right? Be a little offended to equate the two with each other. Christians require both. There are the things that you do that are easy and are glorious, and there are the things that you do that are agonizing and difficult, but they're done for Him. i got to tell you, Wednesday while I was preaching, someone that I love very dear to me died. And yet, those who belong to Jesus never really die, do we? There are things that are easy to do and things that are agonizing to do. Jesus is worth both. He is worth both. So I will go to a funeral on Tuesday at 1 o'clock in the afternoon with the biggest smile anybody's ever worn on their face because I know that my loved one is standing in the presence of the king and death has no sting for me. Can I tell you that what you do says an awful lot about what you believe or don't believe? When we're thinking of copos, there is no better place to look than 1 Thessalonians 3. Keep your finger in Revelation 2 and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 1 and we will eventually get to the third verse. We're going to start in the second verse. Are you all awake this morning? Is this too much teaching for you on a Sunday? Should I, should I give you donuts and tell you you're champions and send you out exactly the same way you came in? You can drive past the abortion clinic without any thought in your heart about it. It doesn't bother you at all, right? Because you're just looking to go to Disneyland in the sky and live like hell all the way there. I could do it. We'd probably build a lot bigger church that way. But would it be a church? Would his lampstand really be there? Or would it be the kind of social gathering that Oprah Winfrey finds herself comfortable in? We always thank God, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, for all of you. Mentioning you in our prayers, verse 3, we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith. What does faith produce? Ergon. The word here is ergon. Your faith has a result of your employ. Trusting God shows up in work. Faith produces it. What else does he remember? Your labor prompted by love. Labor is Kopos, when you love someone, you will labor for them. This is why, ladies, raise your hand if you had children. Okay? Now you can look at whatever age that child is and say, I love you. They don't have to question whether you love them. I mean, they can. All teenagers do things like that. I don't know how old the devil was when he rebelled, but I could guess about 15. That's when my children began denying my existence. But when you go through labor for something, you have to love it or you wouldn't do it. 
uh, let's just be honest about why abortion clinics exist. These people are completely and totally without love of any kind. No matter what they say, what their political affiliation is, what we're dealing with is a demon spirit. And the sooner that we recognize it as the murderous spirit that Cain was filled with and call it what it is, then we can see people actually repent. You, you can't repent if you don't believe what you're doing is wrong. All you can do then is ask God to bless your fig leaf. There's a lot of that going on in the church. With every head bowed, with every eye closed, Jesus loves you just the way you are. If you'll lift a pinky then, and accept Jesus, then it'll all be good with you. Where do you find anything like that in the gospel? That's absurd. The Bible actually teaches that your very best is filthy rags. That you have to come to him with a repentant heart. He will grant you repentance and change everything about you. But there's nothing about you prior to Christ that is good just the way that it is. That's an absurd heresy, to be honest. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith. Faith produces work. Your labor prompted by love. Love produces copos. It produces a wearying labor. And your endurance inspired by hope. This is an interesting thing. Keep your finger in 1 Thessalonians right here so you can refer back to it. But flip back to Revelation chapter 2. Thessalonians said, your endurance inspired by hope. Listen to the third thing that the church at Ephesus was blessed for. I know your deeds, that's your ergon. I know your hard work, that's your kopos. And your perseverance. This perseverance is hupomone. I'm going to put it on the board for you. And I want to tell you it's the same word as endurance in Thessalonians. You have a slide for this too. When we say hupomone, he says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, your endurance inspired by hope. When you have the right hope, it will cause you to endure. He says to the Thessalonians, I know your deed. I know, I'm sorry, to the uh, church at Ephesus, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. Both perseverance and endurance in both passages are hupomone. And you know, it's best described as a character that cannot quit. A character that will not surrender. You didn't just do deeds for the Lord, church at Ephesus. You did the hardest deeds. You didn't just do the hardest deeds. A character in you is being revealed that will not surrender to this world or sin. Incidentally, the same three things were praised in the Thessalonian church. He said, I know that your uh, faith produces work, your labor, your love produces labor, and your Hope inspires hupomone, endurance or perseverance. What I'm getting at here is some things mark all real churches. Do you have a character that won't surrender? Oh, come on now, it got quiet. Do you have a character that won't surrender? Or has your doctrine already caused you to throw in the white flag before we have even fought? I will not make any nationalistic jokes. Our elders are in the house today, and I was told to leave Switzerland and France alone. <laughs> so we won't talk about surrender or France at all in this message. We're simply talking about, right now, you 
and your doctrine. Even though missionaries from Romania say things like that, we do better here in the U.S. We do not offend the other countries that may be listening. Do you have a character that won't surrender? I found out here recently that Costa Rica has no national military. I thought that was very odd. Then I began wondering about the churches in Costa Rica. Then I thought about the churches in the U.S. There are churches in the U.S. that don't have any Christian soldiers in them either. Church, the things that ought to define us, the things that were first said to the first church that Jesus addressed after the ascension is I know your ergon, the result of your employ. I know your wearying work, your labor, your copos. I know that you have a character that won't quit. How do you find out somebody has a character that won't quit? You're going to have to put it. Did you know that perseverance develops your character? Did you know that? Did you know that Romans says it? Did you know that we're to rejoice in trials, as James said? Did, did you have any idea that trials produce perseverance and perseverance produces maturity so that you will not be immature but will be complete? The Bible actually teaches these things even if the pulpits have stopped. See, it turns out that if I tell you that you can have a Disney-like experience in 59 minutes from bell to bell pulling in and out of our parking lot. You can eat the best of the land whether or not you're obedient makes no difference. If you have the right creed, then God will help you in this life now and it'll be Disneyland in the next. It turns out that people flock to this. Then if you mix in a word every now and then about sin everywhere else but nobody's sin in the room, or they even think you're radical. You say things like, look, I know we're not right, but we're a whole lot better than the others, and by that you probably mean the Lutherans, the Episcopalians, and the Catholics. Church, let's not argue about who surrendered the most. Let's stand up and have deeds that prove our faith. Let's labor in a way for the Lord that everybody knows where we stand. Let's have the kind of character that will not back down, will not shut up, shut up let up, or back up. Have you ever read about the early church? You could stone those guys. You could boil them in oil. You could crucify them next to their wife or crucify them upside down. You could not get them to back away from the Christ that they love so much. Do you love him like that? See, I do. I do. My deeds show that I do. And I'm not scared to say that. I'm not embarrassed to say it. I have no fear of contradiction. I'm not telling you that there aren't deeds that say something else. I'm simply saying there are an awful lot of deeds stacked up over the last 23 years that the old Eric Stevens never would have done. I'm saying that there is a labor starting this church is one of them. That if I had never met him in the way that I did, there's no chance it would be here. I'm saying that he put in me a character that cannot surrender when he filled me with his spirit. Now, am I supposed to stand apart or is this supposed to be what all churches are? It is supposed to be what all Christians are. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. The church may have lost its ability to do this. Test. The fourth Greek word here is pirazo, 
This requires a kind of discernment. It means that you're going to work to find out whether something is good or bad. Have you ever read in the book of Hebrews that the mature, through constant use of the word, have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil? It turns out that the a first church that is addressed, they had deeds. They even had labor. They had a character that wouldn't quit. But they had to work to find out. That's crazy when you stand up here how your ability to write goes away. To find out whether something was good or bad. You may not be able just to go, well, I mean, there's a steeple on that building. I, I think what they're teaching is true. You may not be able to go, he had a Bible in his hand, so it, it, it must be right. You might actually have to do what Matthew 7 says and examine their fruit. If all of the leaders have new wives this year, if you can joke about pastor's kids being the worst kids there, I mean, how do you square that with something like the third chapter of Timothy that defines leaders by the way that their homes are? See, church, you'll get exactly what you accept. And the American church has accepted an extraordinary delusion. If someone speaks well or is successful in business, then we worship the God of success and we describe it. We describe it in Christian terms and put Jesus as a footnote to satisfy our critics. This is why people can get really excited about a businessman running for president even if he's immoral. It doesn't bother anybody. doesn't bother the evangelicals. doesn't, doesn't bother Liberty University. His wife posed nude in a magazine. doesn't matter. We want success. This is also why if the church seats a bunch of people, then whatever else it says or does does not matter because the real God in America is success. And if all the people are going, then it must be right. Of course, Jesus had 11 followers at the time of his crucifixion. He appeared to over 500 at one time between the crucifixion and the resurrection. But we lost 380 by the day of Pentecost because they're not in the upper room waiting. But if there's a lot of people, I mean, how could they all be wrong? When were the masses ever wrong? I mean, when we were reading in Noah's day, how could the masses be wrong? When we're reading at the Tower of Babel, how could the masses be wrong? When we're reading about Israel in Egypt, how could the masses be wrong? Friends, the masses are always wrong. It is a remnant that finds life. And they have to parazzo. They have to work very hard to find out whether it's good or bad. I, I don't think that I need to read these to you, but suffice it to say, parazzo could be translated as test. In Genesis 22:1, God tested Abraham. Remember, he asked him to do something impossible. In Exodus 15, 25, God tested Israel. He brought them to bitter waters to see how they would act. Let me ask you, have you had some bitter waters lately? Is it a test for you? Is it so that you can find out whether or not what's going on in your heart is good or bad? 2 Corinthians 13, 5, you're told to parazzo yourself. To examine yourself. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. 
Paul, how could you write such mean and ugly things? You could cause somebody to doubt their salvation. Don't you know that at heaven's gates and hell's flames, 35 years ago, this person once raised a pinky? Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do, do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? Let me ask you, what was the test of a Christian? Is Jesus Christ really being formed in you? See, if, if Jesus' deeds can be discerned in you... Oh, well, let me ask it this way. Did Jesus enter any city and, and, and not turn it upside down? Did, did Jesus ever fail to do the work of the Father? So how can Jesus be in you for 20 years and there be no evidence of it? See, if Jesus is inside of you, you will pass the test because you'll be able to look and go, yes, I love him. It's evidenced in the steps that I'm taking called a walk of faith. Of course, if you fail the test, you just run to a church where everybody agrees not to examine themselves. Form your own little leper colony there. And if your leper colony is bigger than everybody else's, I don't know, maybe you have 365 confessions of faith and you're a leper, but you drive a nice leper car. Maybe you're a leper con. You found the gold at the end of the rainbow. <laughs> you know, all I want to be is Jesus. That's all I want to be. I don't care what I have in this world. I obviously like to eat. Look at me, okay? Having said that, I don't care where I eat, where I live, where I sleep, I live for one purpose. The glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. You don't believe me? Travel with me for a while. I'm not commending myself to you. I'm telling you the truth. Because I think it ought to be the standard in Christianity. Not the rare exception. Yeah? Perhaps we're still looking to anoint David to go fight Goliath when we were all supposed to be giant killers. If you want to appoint somebody in a church in any level of authority, they first have to be tested. Parazo. That's 1 Timothy 3.10. Even if somebody's going to hand out bread as a deacon, they first have to be tested, and then if nothing is found against them, then they could be allowed to serve. Why would you accept somebody who does not live out the Christian dynamic in his own home in a way that has dramatically revolutionized his whole family as the pastor of a church. If you're not faithful in your household, how can you imagine that you would be faithful in God's household? Now, I didn't make that up. That is Paul writing to Timothy. And today, we don't know how they live. We don't care how they live. I mean, it's behind a gated community and there's a secret elevator entrance so that they don't have to talk to you when they come to church. How do you have shepherds that never mingle with their sheep? How does that happen? I don't want to talk about them anymore. I want to talk about you. Romans 16 and verse 10 says, Greet Apelles, who is tested and approved in the faith. Tested and approved in Christ. Could it be said about you? Could it be written in the Bible that you have been both tested and found approved? Do you guard yourself from every test? Do you make sure that you have sufficient money in the bank account so that you never have a financial test? Do you make sure that you've crossed all your T's, dotted all of your I's, so you're never in a vulnerable position because it's in the vulnerable position that you are actually tested? You know, I am proud to death of these four young men. 
One of them got a baby on the way. Been married just a few months. Got a wife way too pretty for him. I mean, out of his league in every way. Didn't back up for a minute. Not in a prideful, arrogant way. With humble, sweet, loving eyes. Looks at the man and says, if you don't find us a blessing, we'll move on. But it is not an option for us to stop talking about Jesus. You talk about filthy things. Your employees talk about filthy things. Nobody ever complains. I talk about my glorious King Jesus, and you all are upset. This is not on the table for discussion. If you want the blessing that comes from our labor, this comes with it. If you do not want this, then we will go somewhere we are wanted. That's courageous. You know another way to say it? That's faith. He actually believes that his heavenly father can provide for him. Now that was only the beginning of the test. But I trust that these four men will have sufficient courage to continue in the faith in whatever direction they go. Look, you don't just test, which is parazo. The next thing that you see in this passage says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. It says, and have found them false. The word found is hurisco. This means to obtain or perceive a result and could be considered to publish it. And what I mean by that is it is not a secret finding. It's like a court finding. It's a public document. After testing the veracity of someone's faith, of a doctrinal claim, of whatever it is, Ephesus didn't keep it to themselves. They made their stance public. Have you ever protested by abstentia? You said, you know what? I don't think I can be a part of that anymore. It's going the wrong direction, so you crossed your arms and left. Well, where were they after you left? And do they even know why you left? Don't you think that's a little bit cowardice? What if a Christian said, hey, I've examined what you're doing. I looked in the Word. I'm looking at your life as a loving brother, a fruit inspector. I don't see Christ in this. And because of that, I don't think I can be a part of it. You, you should consider repenting before this hurts you. Well, then we might save two lives. But if you think that your silence is in itself a protest, it really might just be an excuse for your cowardice. As Christians, we are called to proclaim truth, not secretly observe it and run away in silence and hide. They didn't just parazo, work to find out the good or bad. They horisco. They published the truth. They perceived, obtained the result, and you know about it because history contains it. This is an important part of, of your life. It's not enough to discern something. You have to take an action regarding it. Can we agree that perhaps the church has been a little too actionless? Listen, uh, immorality has flood into this nation. It's a flood of dissipation that Peter talked about. 
And mostly we've sat by silently. You know why? Because if we're well-fed, we don't really care about the rest. Well, the days are coming where you might have to trust God for your daily bread again. And if that happens, you'll care about things like holiness. You know how I know that? Because I travel the world, and they do everywhere else. The, the husband won't cheat on his wife. He won't look at the teenager jogging down the street because he doesn't know how he's going to feed his family, and he loves the Lord. And he would rather starve to death in righteousness than enjoy sin for a minute and damn his soul. And, and they're related because every minute of the day is like, Lord, I need to hear from you because it's 3 o'clock and my kids haven't eaten today. And when the Lord provides... Have you ever read George Mueller's biography? Friends, pick up the missionaries. Read about their lives. They live... My righteous ones will live by faith. There is no way around this. Your faith has to produce ergon. It has to produce a result. There needs to be labor, a character that won't quit. It'll cause you to have to labor to find out whether something is good or bad and then stand on the results. The church was being praised for this. I'm not going to walk through Horasco with you. I will say in Matthew 7, 7, we're told that if you seek, you'll find. In other words, when you find, you are Horasco, Horisco. You are publishing what you found. Can you imagine that you found cancer's cure and you kept it to yourself? Wouldn't you be mad at somebody who did that? And you found the cure for the entire world and you're going to keep it to yourself? Oh, come on, friends. Publish the result. Matthew 7, 14. Narrow is the way to life and few are those who find it. That's not just discover. It means publish it. It means make it known as well. Perceive it. Obtain it. Declare it. While we're thinking on this subject, if you've ever read... 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And man, you can read them all this afternoon after church. He says things like, I have found some of your children walking in the truth. Writing to a church, he says, I have found, I have heurisco, some of your children. And he calls attention to the ones who are walking rightly. And he calls attention to those who are not. Diotrephes, who loves to be first, not walking rightly. He says, and then he replaces him with an elder that would be more suitable because he is walking rightly. Don't tell me God doesn't see our deeds. That denies all of the scripture. Um, I think we probably ought to move on to six in the interest of time. Camno. When we're looking at Camno, if you, oh, I don't know who out here has significant linguistic skills and who does not. There is a phrase in, in uh, Greek here, Camno and Kopeo. And they both literally mean very similar things. They're joined by a conjunction. But all of it is translated in the NIV as this. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Grown weary is what I'm identifying by the word camno. You never got sick of, fainted, or quit. Were you zealous for the Lord when you got born again? Did you share about Him everywhere that you went? When you got filled with the Holy Ghost, were you so excited you couldn't contain it? But somewhere along the way, a spiritual sickness kind of came over you, a little less exciting. You kind of been there, done that. 
You know, I stepped out one time and I lost my job and it took me three months to find another one, so I think I'm good now. I just, uh, I just lay low, stick my head in the sand and not say anything. This church was commended for seven things. The first thing they were commended for was their employee with God, their relationship with Jesus Christ produced deeds. Their labor was evident. They didn't just work, they did the wearying work. They had a character that would not quit. They worked to find out whether what they were being faced with was good or bad, and they published the results for everybody's benefit. They never grew sick, fainted, or quit, spiritually speaking. And yet, do you know that this church also had a warning given it? If you wanted to know what Camno is, have you ever been reading Hebrews 12? And he says, do not lose heart. Do not Camno. You lose heart when you were once bold, you were once excited, you were once passionate, and now your fervor has died down. People told me when I got born again that it would wear off. It's been 23 years. It's growing in intensity. And yet the Lord of glory looks at this church that he loves, and in verse 4 he says, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Friends, if you remove a lampstand from a church, you just have a building. You have an institution. You see this everywhere. John Wesley was an extraordinary man, but I don't think he'd be caught dead in the average United Methodist Church. Uh, if that offends you, then you'd probably need to be offended. His brother Charles, an extraordinary man. But I don't think they'd have anything to do with the people that are wearing their names now. In other words, what started with a man and became a movement ended up as a machine and then a monument. It is simply a testament to what was once alive for the Lord. How many things could that be said about? I was raised in a Lutheran church. You know, I don't think Luther had much in common with the people I went to <coughs> church with. What happens when you started with deeds and you started with a wearying work? You started with a, a character that would never quit, but somewhere along the way, you became more of an institution. You know what happens? Jesus Christ comes and says, I don't care what you've done. If you don't correct this, you cannot continue to represent me. I will take my presence from your church. Do you remember that Samson fell asleep in a whore's lap and he didn't realize that God's presence had left him? How many churches are asleep in the prostitute's lap right now and they don't realize that the things that they're doing, they're just doing because it's what their parents did? It's what their grandparents did? It's, it's what was written down for them to do, but they wouldn't know what the presence of the Lord was if they began to feel it. You know how I know that's possible? I was in a church. Uh, the biggest obstacle to me getting born again was the statement that I was already born again. The biggest obstacle to me worshiping the Lord and falling, I didn't know what a charismatic or Pentecostal was. Never seen one. I, I divided the world into two groups. One of them was Protestant and the other was Catholic. And that's all I thought there was. And one day in worship, singing just as I am. With, <laughs> yeah, I mean... 
Psalm, uh, hymn 142, right? Uh, just as I am. I screwed up. I accidentally, in a moment of being free, raised my hands. They didn't care when I went to topless bars. They didn't care when I was fighting in the parking lots. But somehow or another, raising my hands, we don't do that here. How do you know that the things that you do or don't do are led by the Spirit if you have simply become an institution. Now, it may sound to you very much like I'm stepping on your high school or your alma mater, but understand something. I have no issue with them. I have an issue with you because you're here. I'm trying to step on you, not them. I'm trying to offend you, Amen. not them. And the reason that I am is it's very, very important that you examine yourself to see where you're at in the faith. And you take appropriate steps to grow in the faith. It's, I, I'm not picking on your grandma and grandpa. I'm taking issue with you right here. It wouldn't do me any good to preach to people who aren't here. I'm preaching to you. Are you confident that your spiritual resume says this man is in love with the Lord? Are you confident that it could be characterized as labor? Is a character being developed in you that will not quit? Do you work diligently to discern whether something is good or bad and then stand on and publish the results? When you do those things, now that you've done it, are you sick of doing it and you're just worn out and you want to lose heart? There's one more thing that this church was commended for, and it's, it's an odd one. i got to say, I, 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 it's shocking to the doctrine. Look at verse 6. But you have this in your favor. Can we say if you have it in your favor that Jesus approves of it? Yes. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You know who said that? Jesus the Christ. And by the way, hate is miseo. Uh, you can put it in an Englishman's concordance. You can blue letter Bible it. You can, you can define it until the end of time. And do you know what it means? Hate. It means exactly what you think it means. There's no other way to read it. Uh, every once in a while is translated abhor. Uh, today we don't use that word a lot, but it means hate intensely. It turns out that one of the ways for you to keep your spiritual fervor is to cling to what is good and to hate what is evil. This means that you are not partial to practices that are not godly. This means that you don't act with kindness or favor upon acts that are not God. He didn't hate the Nicolaitans. He hated the practices of the Nicolaitans. Oh, how piercing it is when a Christian looks at someone and says, No, sir, I love you. I hate the wicked deeds that you do. I see the effects upon your family. I've watched your unfaithfulness breed into your son the same wickedness that I see in you, and I hate it. I want you to be free from it. Jesus Christ died to set you free from that wickedness. But you love your wickedness. <laughs> I could never say that. Ten times in the book of Acts, you're told to be a witness. What do you think you're witnessing about? Oh, it's all just the love of God. When the love of God appears here and speaks to the church at Ephesus, these are the seven things he commends them for. And the seventh and final one was that they hated some things. Could you read with me Jude 20, and we're going to read two verses. Jude 20. 
uh, not Judges, Jude 20. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in the most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating, Maseo, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. I want you to understand that our witness is driven from a love for the Lord and a hate for the sin that is destroying people's lives. You have to hate what is evil. 1 John 3, 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. You can't love the devil's work and go about destroying it. Do you need to address holiness issues in your life? Are you in danger of your personal walk with the Lord becoming institutionalized? I wake up and I read my Bible every day, but the only reason I read my Bible every day is because I've always read my Bible every day. You need to breathe life back into your love of the Word? I, I pray, I pray, but, you know, I pray because I'm supposed to pray. Well, how many of you would want, want your spouse to talk to you only because they're supposed to talk to you? All right, honey, it's 7 o'clock. You have till 7.15, and then my talk time is done. Punch a clock. Are you in danger of losing your first love? and simply becoming an institutionalized Christian that does what you do because it's, you know, I don't know what else I would do anymore. The world is depending upon your witness. God said through Isaiah, you are my witness. I announce a thing before it happens so that when it happens, you'll know that I am he. You are my witness. I titled this message Proselytize because that is the accusation being leveled against four young disciples that I love. And my answer to that accusation is yes and a whole lot more which you failed to say. If you are not someone who proselytizes by your entire lifestyle, not just your words, then how could you be a Christian? And the fact that the man that proudly signed the letter goes to the fastest growing church in Fort Bend County ought to tell you Everything. And yet my issue is not with the church. My issue is with those in this room because I surely wouldn't want you to sign a letter like that. It would say something about all of us. Could you stand to your feet?